Hi, my name is Peggy Bennett. Welcome to Two Guys in Search of an Argument. This is a very special episode. Recently, our friend and co-host, Jim Gentili, had a chance to speak to Professor Norman Ornstein. Dr. Ornstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a columnist and contributing editor at the Atlantic Magazine. He serves as an election analyst for the BBC, and he previously worked in a similar capacity for CBS News. He is a consultant to the Emmy Award-winning HBO series Veep. He is the author of numerous books, the most recent one co-authored in 2017, One Nation After Trump. For those of our listeners who share with John and Jim the experience of involvement in high school debate, the name of Norm Ornstein has been a ubiquitous presence in arguments about presidential popularity and presidential power for generations of high school debaters. Please join me as John and I listen to this fascinating conversation between Jim and Dr. Ornstein. Norm, as we sit here talking today, it's November 20th. It's two weeks since the midterm election, uh, except for maybe a few house races that are undetermined at this point, and the Mississippi runoff election, which takes place a week from today. We know the scope of what happened. What's your overall assessment of the midterm results? Uh, Well, first, let me say that uh, we have a Mississippi runoff. We also have a runoff ahead for the uh, position of Secretary of State in Georgia, another one in Louisiana. And the Georgia one is a particularly important election. The Secretary of State of Georgia, of course, has been Brian Kemp. He's the top election official. He may be the king uh, in 2018 of voter suppression of minorities. He stayed in that office even as he ran for governor. There's little doubt that because he disenfranchised hundreds of thousands of people and prevented many others from voting, that the election outcome was determined by that. There's a Democrat who's in a runoff for that position. It would dramatically change the nature of voting in Georgia. That would have an impact in 2020, where there's a big Senate race. So we must keep that in mind. With that, my assessment is that this was a significant blue wave. It wasn't characterized as such on election eve or even in the week that followed. You know, one of the things that's happened, and this is something that I hope networks will take seriously in 2020, the first couple of states that report in with the earliest closing times for their polls are Kentucky and Indiana. They close early, very early, 6.30 in Kentucky, in part because they don't want to have a lot of voting hours. But they're Republican states. And so when the early results came in, and in particular, one of the highlighted House races was Kentucky 6, where the Republican incumbent, Annie Barr, was facing a really remarkable woman named Amy McGrath, who had been a F-18 fighter pilot in Afghanistan and Iraq. And she lost in a very Republican district. And that almost set a tone for some of the coverage that it wasn't going to be a great night for Democrats. But it was. In the end, they could win as many as 40 House seats, which would be, even if it doesn't get quite to 40, it will still be the largest number since the Watergate election of 1974 for Democrats to pick up. We still have millions of votes to count. Looks like they'll win the popular vote by 8 to 9%, which is an extraordinary victory. Seven governorships a large number of state legislative chambers, 
even in a couple of places like North Carolina, where they took the supermajority away from Republicans who have managed under the rules to cripple the Democratic governor, hundreds of state legislative seats, a few secretaries of state positions, the top election officials, they lost what appears to be two seats in the Senate, and that'll give Republicans And that's 53. assuming that the Republicans win the special election in Mississippi. It yes. Will be a DC and that may not be entirely a sure thing. We do have the example of what happened in Alabama, although this is an election occurring in a week, and it's going to be very hard, I think, to mobilize the African-American vote in a state like Mississippi. Although Cindy Hyde-Smith may be doing her best to try to make that happen. Cindy Hyde-Smith is the Republican candidate, for those who don't know. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that I uh, actually tweeted out in the last few days, back in 1977, I was uh, staff director for a committee that reorganized the Senate and its committee system, and we had four days of debate on the Senate floor. And most of that time, I sat on the floor between Gaylord Nelson, a Democrat from uh, Wisconsin, and Russell Long, the legendary Democrat from Louisiana. And there's a long tradition in the Senate. You get a desk on the floor, and you keep that desk. And you write your name. You etch your name on the wood inside. And Russell Long opened up his desk so I could see all the names going back, in this case, to the 1800s. One of them that stuck out for me from the 1940s was Theodore Bilbo, who was, had been a governor and was a senator and was one of the most notorious open racists and white supremacists in modern history. And I think Theodore Bilbo lives in the persona of the Republican who's holding that seat now in an appointment and trying to win election herself, Cindy Hyde-Smith. So when we were discussing the midterm amongst ourselves, we were using, uh, and I wonder if you'd be willing to play along with, we were using this idea, if the body politic of the United States was a patient under medical care based on the midterms, how would you describe the body politics condition? I would say we are still at code blue, but we have a new doctor on the case. Strained as that analogy may be, I would say pretty flatly that if the election had come out the other way, if Republicans had held on to a majority in the, in the House and kept or expanded their majority in the Senate, I think the attitude of the Republican Party would have been, this is great, we don't need to change a thing, we'll just double down on what we've been doing. And that would mean no check and balance on Trump, no check and balance on the moves towards autocracy, on the open corruption and kleptocracy, we're seeing more and more of it, or on terrible governance. And we would also see a lot more efforts, uh, probably successful ones, to suppress votes around the country. So we would be almost done for as a republic with an open system. The moves downward spiral would have been greater, and there would have been no check and balance on the president. Now there's a check and balance, but we're still in very, very difficult straits. And frankly, I don't think we're being helped all that much by an awful lot of the media. I noticed just in the last couple of days, just to pick an example or two, we've seen now that Ivanka Trump has sent hundreds and hundreds of government emails through her private email account. It's just astonishing 
that that could happen after Trump built his entire campaign around lock Hillary Clinton up because of her use of emails on a private account and server. And I noticed we had day after day front page above the fold headlines in the New York Times about Hillary's emails. Many of those headlines sort of in a sinister way suggesting that what she had done was illegal or even uh, harmful to national security. And the headline in the Times on Ivanka's emails was uh, Ivanka Trump giving uh, fodder to Democrats to attack uh, the family. If that's the kind of thing that we have, and now we've learned that even though Donald Trump had pledged that all the profits from his hotel here in Washington would go to charity, that Ivanka Trump made three or four million dollars from that hotel, which is corrupt. But there are at least as many stories about the new member from New York, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and how she only has $7,000 in her savings account. No lessons have been learned by the media, and the ability of the House and Senate to check Donald Trump, uh, the Senate won't do any of it. We know that you had a renewed effort to try and get a bill on the Senate floor, a bipartisan bill to protect the Mueller investigation. Jeff Flake, leaving in January, said, because McConnell had objected to bringing it up on the floor, the majority leader, Flake said, I won't vote for any judge unless you bring this bill to the floor. Any one other Republican senator who joined with Flake would guarantee that that bill would come to the floor. I would guarantee no more appointments approved at least until January. And would uh, if he didn't bring it to the floor, and McConnell would bring it to the floor because it's not going to pass the, re the Republican House now, and it would have to be reintroduced in January. But even as a symbolic measure where you'd get a substantial bipartisan majority of the Senate voting to protect Mueller, not one Republican senator has joined with Flake. Susan Collins, who used to be a moderate, used to be called a moderate, said she wants to protect Mueller, but she won't do what Flake did. Bob Corker isn't doing it. Lindsey Graham, who had raised all kinds of questions about attempts to block Mueller, isn't doing it. Lamar Alexander isn't doing it. Lisa Murkowski isn't doing it. The willingness to do even the slightest thing to put a check on Trump's autocracy, ties to Russia, corruption, just not there. So you can't be too optimistic, but at least there is a check and balance in place now with subpoena power, the ability to investigate and the like. Is there any um, one thing from the election that you would say one result or one trend that you would be most optimistic about? I think the most optimistic element was the incredible array of candidates with different talents emerging to run as Democrats. Not the old usual suspects, uh, not a lot of people who had come up through the normal ranks. We have undercover CIA agents, women now in Congress. We had fighter pilots and Marines, women running for Congress. We have more women now in the House of Representatives than ever before. We have Muslim American women. We have Indian American women. And I think what we're seeing out there is a call to service and a call to action as people have been jolted into realizing that the future is at stake. 
And I find that to be a very heartening thing. The other thing that's heartening is that Democrats who have had this problem with a gender gap, certainly it works to their advantage because they've had more support from women than men, and there are more women than men. But now what they're finding is that, at least in this election, college-educated white men were a major target for Democrats, along with college-educated white women. Now, there's still more non-college-educated people in the country than college-educated, but Democrats are making inroads, especially with those suburban white women, that enable them to win a number of seats in the House. And the way things have been going with Trump and his misogyny and other crude behaviors with policies, including child separation, it's quite possible that these are voting block that will stick with Democrats through 2020. And that would be a very uh, positive thing for them. I have two questions related to the composition of the, the related to what you were talking about. The first is there's a record number of women going to be in Congress a huge number of women comparatively, but it is vastly disproportionately on the Democratic side. There is a huge, the the percentage of which are Democrats opposed to Republicans. No matter what your political preference is, if you're a Republican operative, that has got to be a disturbing portent for the future, no? If you look at the class pictures, Republicans and Democrats, what you see very vividly and very visibly is that white males are now a minority among Democrats in Congress. White males are almost the entirety of Republicans in Congress, over 90%. The number of Republican women in the House was cut in half. So the differences between the parties, I mentioned a gender gap, and it was quite striking this time. I mentioned the education gap. There's also a marriage gap. Untethered people tend to be more Democrats, married people more Republicans, and the society is becoming less married than it was before. There is a religiosity gap. The more religious people, and that's especially true of whites, tend to be Republican, but we have a country that's becoming more secular, and really the Republican base now is pretty much defined by white evangelical Christians. And they're uh, still a substantial group, but they're becoming a minority as well. And then we have a racial gap, obviously. Republicans have not done as badly among Hispanics as I might have expected given the nature of their policies. But even so, overwhelmingly, African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Asian-Americans have become Democrats. And what we see at the mass level is what we now see at the elite level. The parties are defined in very different ways, and it's very visible to see. But, but a party that, that women, who are, there's more women than men, that has a disproportionate disadvantage among women, that is not a formula for winning a lot of elections, one would think, right? So, you know, if we take this back... Republicans won their enormous victory in the midterm election, the first midterm of uh, Barack Obama, 2010. 63 House seats, more state legislative seats and governors than they ever could have possibly dreamed. And then went into 2012, believing that they had unmasked the Kenyan socialist president and they waltzed to victory. And when they lost, and lost handily, they were shocked, and the then chair of the Republican National Committee, Reince Priebus, did his famous autopsy for his party, 
And the thrust of it was, oh my God, we're becoming a minority among voters in the country. All the trends are working against us, and that's particularly true of Hispanics and other minorities. And we need to change, and the core of it was we need a comprehensive immigration bill. Now, I think that wouldn't have been enough, but obviously it didn't go anywhere. They won another massive victory in 2014, and then won the presidency against all odds in 2016 and held on to the Congress. And that same Reince Priebus becomes the chief of staff in the White House and throws away every part of that autopsy. And I, you know, to. And didn't, but he himself didn't survive for very long, no, regardless of that. But I would boil it down to this. What Priebus was pointing out in 2012 was the Republican Party was at a crossroads. They had two possible directions to take. One was to change rhetoric and policies to appeal to a broader group of Americans so that they could compete for a majority of the votes in the country. The second path was to double down on their base, try and suppress the votes of the other side's base, and that's the path they chose. And it's a path which brought them some success, not so much this time, but it's something that we have to be uneasy and concerned about for the future. It's not a way for a party to operate in the American political system where you decide you're going to be a minority and use the rules for leverage. But what we also have to keep in mind is that if you add up the votes for the House aggregated across the country and just apply it as it would provide an outcome for electoral votes, you could see a real possibility that Donald Trump could lose the popular vote by 8 or 9 million. He lost by 3 million the last time and still win still an electoral it. college victory. And what we've seen in North Dakota with the suppression of the votes of American Indians, in Kansas with the suppression of the votes of Hispanics in the state, in Georgia and in Florida with the suppression of mostly African-American votes, and we may see it in Mississippi ahead, is that they could win states where actually the majority of voters were not with them just by using these techniques. And what we've seen is it's not just voter ID. It's cutting out early voting. It's cutting the number of hours. It's, uh, as we saw in several precincts in Georgia, minority precincts where they didn't provide the power cords for the voting machines, so when people showed up, they couldn't vote. And when they finally arrived hours later, a lot of people just melted away. It's, as we saw in Kansas, taking the one area where there were Hispanic American voters and moving the one polling place in that county, not just away from the central uh, city where it was accessible, but way beyond public transportation. It's in Georgia where a busload of elderly African-Americans was going to vote early and the police stopped them and said it was an illegal political activity and blocked them from being able to go and vote. These are Jim Crow era tactics to the max and it's a very, very troublesome thing that we have to worry about. And then of course I could throw in the Russian interference in 2016 and the real problems with security of the elections going forward. So. Let me pull back a little bit historically in terms of those two paths for the Republican Party. Obviously, Ronald Reagan serves for the modern Republican Party, much like FDR does for the Democratic Party as the sort of yeah. figure 
and tremendous electoral success and a watershed figure. But from my perspective, not to take anything away from Reagan and his success, the intellectual godfather of those heady Republican dates was Jack Kemp. Now, I didn't know Jack yeah. Kemp, but you probably did know Jack. I was uh, friends with Jack Kemp. And I knew him well. Jack Kemp was a conservative. I don't think there's any yeah. denying that. But it seemed to me that what he stood for was the idea that the Republican Party should be figuring out a way to get minority voters and you know try to bring more African Americans, try to attract more of them into the party. I don't isn't it inconsistent, and maybe this is the two roads you're talking yeah. about, it's inconsistent with that to say that the way we're going to win is try to keep African-Americans from voting. Jack Kemp seems to me, his story would have been, we need to figure out a way to get them to vote for us, not to prevent them from voting. I really believe that if Jack Kemp were alive today, he would be extremely upset. He'd be beside himself. I'm not sure he would continue to identify as a Republican, because this is not what he had in mind. And Kemp was a genuine compassionate conservative who wanted to bring conservative policies to provide real opportunity for minorities and actually had some ideas that could well have resonated and the sorts of things that a genuinely compassionate conservative party could approach. Now, Paul Ryan has portrayed himself as an offspring intellectually of Jack Kemp. And for a while, he had a little bit of the rhetoric. Zero follow-through, in fact, exactly the opposite in terms of policies. The closest we have to a Jack Kemp now is John Kasich, the governor of Ohio. And Kasich, among other things, insisted on expanding Medicaid when most other Republicans refused to do it. And he said, it's not just because it's free money, it's because these are people who genuinely need help, and that's our obligation. I would say the other person who comes closest is not an elected official. It's our own president here at AEI, Arthur Brooks, who does walk the walk and talk the talk. But there is not, as best I can tell, a single elected member of the House or Senate who is a Republican who has pursued in any way the sets of policies that might actually result in a level of change. And what we're seeing, not just in Washington, but out in the States, one good example, these work requirements for Medicaid that are being approached in a way in Arkansas, give you an example. They instituted a work requirement for Medicaid recipients. You can only show that you are meeting the standards by going online. You can't do it in person. You can't do it by mail. You can't do it on paper. Arkansas happens to have one of the lowest rates of internet connectivity of any state in the union. And you can only do it up till nine o'clock at night. So they've already removed 12,000 and more people from the Medicaid rolls, many of whom were in fact working and doing what the social contract says. And some of these people are gonna end up getting ill having no protection, losing their jobs, probably costing the state and the society even more money. This is what defines the modern Republican Party, and I find it just disgraceful. Let's talk about the Democrats for a couple of minutes. Right now, there is discussion. It'll be resolved by the time this is played about uh, the future of Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. But there's a larger question there because it's 
Pelosi, Hoyer, Clyburn represent yeah. leadership that's been in place for a long time. And 78, 79, 78, and 8. And even leaving aside their, their ages, they've been in these positions essentially for almost 15 years, which is a long time to be in the leadership yeah. position. And, but part of that is the struggle as a proxy, right, for the future. What is the face of the future of the Democratic Party? Yeah. Right, and what is the future? Is it is the Democratic would the Democratic Party be making a mistake in turning to Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden, just to name two, as opposed to trying to find the next Obama in the field out there for the for twenty twenty? So first, let's talk about Pelosi. I think the Democratic Party would be making an immense mistake if they start off the first impression for Americans as Democrats capture a majority with a deep internal fight that might turn into, for the first time in a very long time, multiple ballots for a speaker on the floor of the House. And then, perhaps just as bad, choosing somebody who has not shown in any way the skills to be an effective speaker. Pelosi's great weakness is she's not great on television. She's not as articulate as you might want or as smooth. But that's one of the least important elements of being a, a party leader and a speaker. You've got to be able to know your members, know their strengths and weaknesses, know what they need, know which ones you push, which ones you sweet talk. You've got to be able to coordinate across strong personalities among the committees, give them enough leeway to do their job, but then make sure that they're not stepping all over each other. You've got to be tough in negotiating with a Donald Trump, a Mitch McConnell, or a Kevin McCarthy. Pelosi has shown all of those strengths. And what's even more striking is in this year of the women in Congress, the 16 ringleaders of an effort to unseat her include 14 white men. So it's just plain stupid in my judgment. That's one part of it. Now, in terms of 2020, bringing in a septuagenarian presidential candidate is probably not the best look. But what we have to remember is this is not going to be some rational process where people looking for the best candidate or the best president can choose from among 20 or 25. And Although there probably will be 20 or 25 people running. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be an out-of-control process. I believe that this is tied to this fight over Pelosi as well. If the Democrats in the House start out badly, stumble, and do not have a good two years, can't pass some bills that at least lay out the markers for what Democrats in Congress would do, have investigations that go all over the map and don't cohere in any fashion, then Democrats around the country are going to be angry angry that they worked their tails off to create this majority and they didn't do anything that they promised to do. And if the zeitgeist of the party going into 2020 is anger and you've got 10 candidates on a main debate stage, most of them unknown to the voters ahead, the ones who channel the anger may be the ones most able to which catch is, the wave. Which is essentially what Trump did on the Republican That's exactly what Trump did, because if you go back to that nominating process, the anger that and frustration that Republicans felt 
was not just at Obama and Democrats and Clinton. It was at their own party leaders who promised them that if, they gave, if you gave them the power in the House and Senate, they would bring Obama to his knees and repeal Obamacare and repeal Dodd-Frank and blow up government as we knew it. And none of those things happened. And Trump got up there and ridiculed his rivals, uh, weak Jeb, uh, little Marco, lying Ted, took on Fox News and basically said, I'm not weak like the rest of them. I'm not going to roll over. I'll make sure that they're the ones who are on the run. And that worked. So the nightmare of a Michael Avenatti or another candidate, including a Bernie Sanders, channeling that anger, that's, I think, dangerous, very, very dangerous and frightening. And what Democrats, I think, would be better off doing if I could manipulate a process is to pick somebody like a Mitch Landrieu, somebody with executive governing experience outside of Washington, a mayor of a big diverse city who is progressive, unites minorities, blacks and whites together as he's done in New Orleans, a pragmatic progressive and young enough and fresh enough that it would capture a public and reassure them that you could have, you could go back to reasonable, straightforward governance that focuses on problem solving. You could see the same thing with an Amy Klobuchar. I was going to mention her from yes. your home state. Yes. Who and, uh, impressed a lot of people, well, impressed a lot of people with the size of her electoral victory, yes. but also with her sort of even-handed, even-tempered approach to the Kavanaugh situation. Uh, Amy is a straightforward, mature person with very strong values, comes from a working-class background, can speak to working-class people. That, I think, would be a much better look than some of the others who would be easily characterized as angry and shrill or even Democratic versions of Trump, although nobody potentially running is as much of a narcissistic sociopath. It's hard to see if you could, that would be a yeah. tough one to find. Yeah. But in terms of the House, the Democrats do have a majority in the House. Yes. The focus, would you agree that the focus should be on, for want of a better term, bread and butter things, pass an infrastructure bill, pass health care, pass things like that, that have broad support throughout the party, that would seem to be popular with the public to show, hey, this is what we could do if it weren't for this obstructionist Senate and yeah. obstructionist president. So I did a piece in the New Republic about what Democrats should do, and that's a core part of it. It has to be focusing on the problems that the country faces and showing that you actually have reasonable solutions. It starts for me with a democracy package, and I do think there's a substantial feeling in the country that the system is broken and that you need to do something about political money, about the nature of districts, about the ability to vote, and ultimately about some of the structural challenges that we have. It goes to fixing the healthcare system after it's been ripped apart by the Republican Party and Donald Trump, not by promoting a pie-in-the-sky alternative right now, but on trying to ensure that the Affordable Care Act works, works better, and ensures more people and keeps them from being jolted by enormous increases in their out-of-pocket expenses. It goes to jobs and job security and providing a living wage for people who do what the society asks them to do, which is to go to work, do your work, 
and then in return you will have food on the table, a roof over your head, and the ability to educate your children. It includes doing something about the dangers in the climate, and it also includes making sure the economy can keep moving with the right kind of jobs with an infrastructure plan. There are a lot of areas where it's not difficult to come up with common sense ways of moving forward. The only one I can imagine being enacted into law is the infrastructure plan. And Democrats are going to have a challenge because Trump would love to have a victory that he could portray as bipartisan. And there are going to be some Democrats who will say, no, we're not going to give him that victory. If I understand what you're saying specifically regarding infrastructures, you think it's more important for the Democrats to show they can pass a good bill, and if it ends up being signed by Trump, you know, great. Uh, but if it doesn't, then I, it's I, an issue. Yeah. I find it very hard to imagine that a lot of votes will be changed in favor of Trump just because he's able to get an infrastructure bill with Democrats. In fact, I think Democrats can show with that that they're the ones who can work with Republicans who couldn't do this when they had all when the they power. Had all, the, all the power, they yeah. didn't get an infrastructure bill passed. Um, so uh, I think there are opportunities here. But those opportunities for Democrats in Congress mean they have to hit the ground, not just running, but with firm feet there, knowing where they're going. And a leadership struggle is a disaster for them in the making. You have been way ahead of the curve in your writing about the dysfunction of the system. You've been talking about it, uh, not only that the system is dysfunctional, but that the reasons for it are asymmetrical. It's not all, it's not a 50-50, the Democrats yeah. are just as much to blame as the Republicans. Is Trump, because of who he is, because of how he makes, he brings to a head so many things that have been happening in the Republican Party, maybe brings the ugliness out in the open. Is he, might we someday look back and say Trump was the turning point in terms of because he was so outlandish, because he so made this so obvious that that's when the reaction began to come in and shift the other way. Um, I, I, we are seeing at least some signs of an understanding by some in the mainstream media, as we call them, uh, that this is asymmetric and that the Republican Party has careened out of control. We are seeing, I think, now from some of those, especially suburban women, the more highly educated elements of the Republican Party, seeing it's almost like you look under the rock and you see these maggots, that this is not what they signed up for. It's still incumbent upon Democrats to try and create an alternative that makes them comfortable. And they can't move too far to the left without having repercussions on that front. But having said that, so many of the issues that we have will be still there if and when Trump goes. The next generation of Republicans that I see coming forward, the farm team, those in the state legislatures, in other state offices, party officials, make the Freedom Caucus look like socialists by comparison. And they've bought completely into the sort of crude, racist, extremist language and viewpoint. And I guess I would step back and say that the way in which we turn the larger situation around and get back at some point to two problem-solving oriented parties clashing but also understanding the commonality of the problems we face and working towards solutions 
is if Republicans lose three elections in a row by margins similar to the one we just had. So that would mean... Lose the presidency and the Senate in 2020, and then going against the grain, not recapturing the bodies back in 2022. And that might turn the tide. Then I think if they come to the conclusion that the path they've chosen will not work, then you're going to get traction for some of the people, some of whom have left the party but would happily go back, still ideologically conservative. Some of those who are in elective office or even who have lost elective office but could see a path forward, that could put us on a better path. We are going to see, I think, on another happier note, a lot of reaction in the civil society. I think this has jolted some people that we could lose it all. And that's true of the younger generations coming forward as well. And that may bring some changes from the bottom up before we get them at the elite level with the party. We still have to emphasize, Jim, that some of the future lies in the hands of Democrats. If they can't govern, if they fumble the ball. If they fumble the ball, and if their reaction in 2020 is to move to an unacceptable position on the left instead of center-left, away from pragmatism and towards a more dogmatic ideology, which I believe was represented in Bernie Sanders, and we see in a few others, although still a, a small minority, if the center is just completely unoccupied, then it could turn very, very ugly. And one way in which it could turn ugly is if you, could, if you end up with a Democratic candidate who is an Avenatti or a Sanders running against a Trump or even a Pence who is far more of an ideologue than Trump. Although perhaps not with his personal peccadillos. Yeah, right. He would, he would behave uh, somewhat like a typical president, even if uh, doing, very, the, very doing the symbolic things, but dogmatically conservative. Um, and keep in mind that in a Republican state, if Pence hadn't been chosen to be the running well, mate for Trump, he would not have won re-election. Trump. But if that, those are the two main choices, then I think almost inevitably we're going to have a well-heeled Bloomberg-type candidate emerge in the middle. And the best that can happen under those circumstances for that candidate is to win enough electoral votes to send the election to the House of Representatives, and they would choose the Republican. And that would be even less legitimate. Because it goes by the states, not by the... 50 votes, and you need 26 to win. And no matter what happens with the majority in the House, the Republicans dominate small, homogeneous, white states, and they will have a majority of the states. People have been speculating since I was a child, literally, about, oh, realignment of the parties and the emergence of a viable third party. Even under the circumstances you're painting now, you don't think that's a likely outcome. We do not have a political system set up to tolerate or accommodate a third party. The one advantage of a parliamentary system is when you get the kind of schism that we see in the Republican Party, and when you have whatever group of moderate Republicans in the country there are out there, or conservatives but who are more focused on solving problems, the never-Trumpers who don't see a home now in the Republican side but don't see the Democrats as providing them an opening, in a parliamentary system, you could get a bull moose party emerging that could win 
seats in the parliament, and then you could find different coalitions forming. We don't have that in our system. Our system is built around two parties, and a third party, unless it can win sizable numbers of seats in single-member districts uh, out in the country, which is not going to happen, can only make mischief in presidential elections, just as we saw with the distortion of the results that came from a Jill Stein or a Gary Johnson or before that a Pat Buchanan or a Ralph Nader. Now, it hasn't happened for over 150 years, but one thing that has happened in the United States history is that one of the two parties ultimately is replaced by a new party. The Republicans more or less replaced the Whig party. So if the Republican Party drives itself off the cliff three elections in a row, is it possible that a new party emerges that essentially replaces the Republican Party as the alternative? Yeah, you could find a party with a different name that would encompass... And maybe to remove the taint, if at that point the taint of being the party of Trump is so strong that maybe that's what you do. Yeah, and you could easily imagine a center-right party in this country being very capable of winning a majority of votes. You know, keep in mind... The John Kasich party or the... It would be a kind of John Kasich party that was not hostile to minorities. And the fact is... Or women. Yeah, (laughs) or women. But Hispanic voters not too long ago were providing 40% or more of their votes to Republicans. And in fact, on that note, Karl Rove strongly encouraged George W. Bush to pass immigration reform and made they made an effort to do so yep on his view was that if you could get past that issue for cultural reasons hispanic voters could very well be solid republican voters or a significant percentage of them if you could get past the immigration yes and frankly i was shocked at how substantial the support for republicans was from hispanic americans given not just the failure to pass an immigration bill but the openly nativist language, the cruelty of the child separation policies, the talk about Mexican rapists and the like, and still there was sizable level of support and not the kind of voter turnout that you might have imagined. There are voters to be had because of the belief that they work hard and they should reap the benefits of the society because for many of them, they came here illegally and they're not all that interested in others coming in in a different way because they don't identify so much as Hispanics as they do as Cuban-Americans or Salvadoran-Americans or Mexican-Americans. Or in some cases, Catholics. Yes, and because the strong religious beliefs and the strong tradition of serving in the military, they're among the few groups left who are very conservative on social issues like abortion or gay rights. Two quick things. I know you've got to go. go, But... but, uh, State of Florida has for many, many years been a tantalizing thing for the Democrats. It seems always out of reach just by a few points yeah. and again happened this year. But they, the voters in Florida approved reenfranchisement that's supposed to potentially yeah. affect over one million citizens who were convicted felons. A substantial portion of them are believed to be African-Americans. Is it possible that that sea change to the electorate flips Florida from a state that seems to be narrowly Republican when it counts to a state that ends up being narrowly Democrat when it counts. So there are a few things to say about that. One is it was quite striking that this was a referendum that required 60% of the votes in a state split 50-50, and they got two-thirds. And when I checked around to see how that surprising result could happen, 
The people pushing this were very clever. Their ads didn't feature a lot of African Americans. They featured young whites with opioid addiction. And it was an appeal to people, do you want your kids to lose their right to vote forever? So it worked. We're talking about 1.4 million people, the vast majority of whom are African Americans or other minorities. And if indeed, one, large numbers of them do vote, and we have no real clue about whether getting this vote back will make two-thirds of them or three-fourths of them decide that now it's worth voting. And two, whether the voter suppression methods that have been used in Florida in the past, which include cutting out Sunday voting before the election, cutting out early voting, cutting the number of polling places and the like, can work. Now, at the same time, we know that the 2000 election was settled for George Bush because of that butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County. And think about how this was a Democratic inept election official who put a ballot together and neither party, and that includes the Democratic Party in Florida, which had it out there for weeks, looked at it and said, oh my God, this cannot stand. If Al Gore, who lost thousands of votes because of that, votes that ended up being cast for Pat Buchanan or Ralph Nader, no Iraq war. Climate change moved in a very different direction, totally different judiciary. 16 years later, 18 years later, Democratic election official, even more incompetent in Broward County, does a ballot design that makes it hard to see where the vote for Senate is. And you have people who don't even see it on the ballot and don't Nobody vote. caught it. 25,000 undervotes. And an analysis shows that it would have been enough for Bill Nelson to win. What Democrats need to do in Florida now is not just to put the resources in to make sure that the 1.4 million people now who have their votes back vote, but also to make sure that whether it's Palm Beach County or Miami-Dade County or Broward County or wherever else it might be, that they get ballots designed that are not going to sway an election. And at the same time, we know that the Democratic performance in Miami-Dade County was a disappointing one. And it was because Democrats didn't make the right appeals to Hispanic voters in that district including especially Cuban-Americans. And the newer generation of Cuban-Americans are not reflexively Republican. So a smart Democratic Party is going to be able to do much better. And of course, if Florida becomes a blue state, then... If I were Tom Perez, I'd be investing some money in registering voters in Florida in the next two years. Well, you would sure hope so. Uh, Final question. For me, a note of optimism, I wonder if you agree. The size of the turnout, which I've heard... Uh, percentage-wise, the largest possible since 1970 or since 1966. Should we take that as a sign? I take it as a sign of optimism because of the level of engagement. Do you agree? I agree, um, again, with the caveat. If things don't work well in the next two years, if Democrats don't show that they can at least put some check and balance around the president or provide some level of a positive agenda, you may see a disillusionment. And that could be true among younger voters. You may see a turn away from them for people who were turned off by Trump, including those suburban women. And we might not see that uptick emerge again in 2020. But I think 
there were a lot of people who saw that the stakes of this election were higher than in any midterm election, certainly in our lifetimes. And I expect that that's going to me that the, that the last midterm elections comparable were yes. during the Vietnam War and that whole period. Yes, and, and this is, uh, you know, as we indicated at the outset, the biggest Democratic victory since the Watergate election. and that Which was the sort of the end of that. Yeah, period. and that uh, had a group of people who said this cannot stand. So it's an opportunity for the Democrats. Can they make the best of it? Yes, exactly. Thanks, Norm. You bet. Hey, everybody. This is John. I'd like to take a minute and thank Dr. Norman Ornstein for being our guest today with Jim Gentile. And in particular, I'd like to thank you. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or another platform, please take a moment and give us a rating. When you give us a rating, it's easier for other listeners to find us and enjoy the show. I'd also like to thank Mary Heinz for editing and technical help, Ted Enley for the music coming into and out of the show, and Shelley Cummings and Peggy Bennett for helping me organize the introduction and outro for the show. If you have any ideas for the show or if you have some feedback for us, we would love to hear from you. Take out your iPhone right now, go to voice memos, and record us a message. After you record it, hit that little box with the arrow coming out of it, the Shero, and send it as an email to us at twoguysinsearch, all spelled out, twoguysinsearch at gmail.com. Or you can always just tweet at us, reach out to us on Facebook, or reach out to us on our own website, twoguysinsearchofanargument.com, all spelled out with words. Thanks again for listening. Have a great fortnight.